you can open the Word of God with me to 1 Peter, the first epistle of Peter. And you will find 1 Peter is located right after the book of James. So Sunday school, we're looking at James. Peter is the book that immediately follows that. Now, why 1 Peter? We concluded with Mark's gospel last week, and 1 Peter is somewhat of a natural follow-up to the gospel according to Mark because, at least according to tradition in church history, we're told that Mark wrote his gospel based on the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. And I think as we go through that gospel, we see evidence of that as well. So that's one reason I find 1 Peter a natural place to go next. But the real reason I believe this letter is so timely for us is that 1 Peter is written to troubled churches, churches living in uncertain times, churches facing an increasingly hostile culture that is speeding down a collision course for all-out persecution under the Roman government. And I can assure you then that everything we read in the 21st century in this letter has been written and preserved for our learning for our instruction in this age. So I'm excited about this new study. I hope you are. Let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Let's just read the first two verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord's help as we begin this new study in 1 Peter. Father, we approach you this morning as the God of all grace, and we ask, O Lord, that you would graciously give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. Uh, Father, I'm sure there are many distractions, there are many things on the minds of your people. Maybe somebody's here who doesn't even know the gospel of Jesus Christ, but whatever the case, we just ask, oh God, that you would be gracious to us once again to hear from you. Uh, Your people and anyone here doesn't need to hear from me, and so I pray that you would use your servant, and I pray that you would communicate your truth in such a way that we won't forget it, And that it will have a lasting impact on our life. Oh God, you gave us this letter for our learning. And we pray that this letter would have its impact upon your church in these last days. This we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Near the end of the Second World War in uh, December of 1944, the German army launched a major all-out counteroffensive against the Allies in the West. Uh, This resulted in what we call the Battle of the Bulge. And the Germans were aiming to drive a wedge to divide in France the Allies, and so they could capture the Allies' supply lines. And to achieve this, the Germans needed to capture the small town of Bastogne. It was located at a, a junction between several roads, several major roads leading into southeast Belgium. Bastogne was being defended by Americans from the 101st Airborne. And these troops dug in when they got wind that this was going to go down really quick. They dug in immediately uh, in the outlying forest. But winter conditions in this December were very severe. They had limited ammunition. 
they lacked adequate food and winter clothing, med supplies, and they were spread very thinly over the area they were assigned to defend. So just before the intense fighting began, General McAuliffe of the United States Army visited these frontline troops. And after a brief chat with the officers, all he could say was, hold the line, close the gaps. Hold the line, close the gaps. That's essentially where Peter is going to come down to in his letter to the, these troubled churches, facing a spiritual counteroffensive from a spiritual enemy in their time. After encouraging them in regards to their awesome salvation and, and after urging them to keep their Christian testimony in the midst of fierce opposition, Peter closes his letter by telling these Christians, stand firm, hold the line. Now, brothers and sisters, God knew that we in our time would need this message. Let's not be naive. We should realize what's happening. I, I heard several stories. I read several stories even this week all that happened within the last year alone. Stories where Christian teachers and medical workers were fired simply for refusing, refusing, mind you, from their own religious convictions to acknowledge someone's personal pronouns. And they lost their jobs and were slandered in all sorts of ways. Let's not be naive. We need to realize what is happening. We need to wake up and realize the trend of our culture. We don't live in a society that is philosophically neutral to the Christian faith. We live in an increasingly antithetical and hostile society. One that is antithetical and hostile to the Christian worldview, that is. Our post-Christian society, which is where we live now, is on the fast track to becoming an anti-Christian society. A few years ago, a study was conducted on practices used to attack any specialized target group, and this covered persecuted groups of all types throughout history. And the study identified five stages of persecution. Maybe you can think about where we are in this, this, uh, these stages. Stage number one was identified as stereotyping. The stereotyping of a target group so that this group is seen as different than the norm. And people will say things at this stage like, all Christians are superstitious and hypocritical, self-righteous, repressed, sexist, no, nothing uncommon about that. Stage number two, vilifying the target group as harmful to others. And at this stage, bigotry toward this group becomes permissible. This is where someone might say, Christians are haters, anti-science, homophobic, intolerant. They are harmful to society. Stage number three is the marginalizing of the group's influence in society. This is where Secularists might claim, since Christianity is deemed harmful to society and, of course, is untrue, the Christian faith must be kept private. The Christian faith must be excluded from education, from public spaces, and from political dialogue. I think we've seen that happening. Stage number four, the study reveals, is the criminalizing of the target group and their practices. This includes actual litigation now, and legal injunctions, limiting religious freedom. This is where the society will say, if you as a Christian refuse to bake a cake or perform a wedding for your religious reasons, we will compel you. And if you don't comply, we will punish you. Stage number five, this is persecuting the targeted group outright. This is 
the end of it all. As a danger, the group must be stopped. And so the warrants, uh, this warrants the use of fines and restrictions, incarcerations, and in some cases, even killings. This is where those in power believe that Christians must be removed from society. They must be shut down. They must be punished. And wherever we currently are in that trajectory, it's only a matter of time before this spirit of Antichrist, which has been in this world, John tells us from the very days of Christ, this spirit of Antichrist forbids us to preach the truth of God even in the walls of this building, let alone out in the streets, and even in the own confines of our own home. Whatever tomorrow holds for this nation, for our culture, God has given us everything we need. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? God has given us what we need as a church to stand firm in our time. And to this end, he has given us this letter. This letter was written to prepare Christians to suffer, to prepare Christians like us to stand firm in their faith. And I want to show you that, but as I do, I want to take this opportunity to give you the big picture, the introduction to this letter. And so we're first going to look at the historical context. That's the real and the relatable situation that uh, this letter, uh, that surrounds this letter. And then we're going to see some literary characteristics, uh, a few neat details that help us understand and better appreciate First Peter. So let's first consider the historical background and setting of this letter. Knowing certain uh, background details, it'll help us better appreciate what God has to say for us here and the whole purpose of this letter. First, notice in verse 1, notice the author of this letter. Verse 1 begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Today, we typically sign our name at the close of a letter, but in the days of the first century in the Greco-Roman world, writers would typically sign their name at the beginning. And that's what this writer does. He first introduces himself to us as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. At least most of us are quite familiar with Peter's story. We just went through the Gospel of Mark and talked quite a bit about him. But maybe somebody here is not. Peter was one of Jesus' twelve, one of, even within the twelve, one of Jesus' inner three closest friends, his disciples. He was an apostle, that is, one whom Jesus directly commissioned and sent to do his work. And his Hebrew name was Simon. But when Jesus met Simon, he immediately gives him a new name. It's the name Peter. And it means stone. Now, Jesus didn't give Simon the name Peter because Simon was as firm as a stone. Actually, just the opposite is true. Simon, if you know him, Peter, before he met Jesus, and as he began to meet Jesus, was just the opposite. He was a double-minded man. He was unstable in all his ways. Several weeks ago from Mark's gospel, we actually examined Peter's denial of Christ, where he became guilty of doing the very thing. He said, I will never do, and he did it. He denies Jesus three times, and suddenly he remembers the Lord's words, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And it may be that at that point in Peter's life, he thought, God is done with me. I'm a failure. There, there's, there's no hope. I've made a mess of my life. It's, it's too late for me. And maybe somebody here feels like that. We all come to places like that in life. But brothers and sisters, listen, Jesus doesn't give up on you. And you might feel your life is wasted. And you might feel your life is somehow damaged goods. 
But Peter would want you to know something. That the Jesus he met and the Jesus of history, the Jesus who has spoken to us in these words, is a Jesus who forgives. He's the Jesus who restores, and he's the God who transforms his people. Now we see in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, as we examined a couple weeks ago, Jesus' first words for the first witnesses of his resurrection were what? Go and tell my disciples, go and tell the disciples and Peter, go and tell Peter, that denier, that failure, I want to meet him. I want to meet him. I'm not done with him. Even that night that Jesus foretold Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He also said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan wants to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy you. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you. Simon, I pray for you. And when you are converted, not if, when you are converted, Jesus was confident in the power of God in Simon's life. And he says, when you are converted, you strengthen your brothers. You turn around and you stand firm and you help others. Well, Simon was converted. He became Peter, a stone, one who was firm and fixed. The book of Acts tells us how Peter not only refuses to deny Jesus, in the, in the face of hostility and intense opposition. But Peter resolves to publicly preach Jesus' name to others. Galatians 2.9 says Peter was reputed to be a pillar in the church. You see, the name that Jesus gave Simon, this name, Peter, Stone, was prophetic. Because it, it predicted who Simon would become. Peter, the stone, an apostle, a man fixed firm, immovable in his faith in Christ. Jesus transformed Peter, and he can transform you. If you're a baby Christian, if you feel weak in the faith, if you have all these habits, that's what God wants to do in your life. This letter, 1 Peter, actually was only written. This letter we're going to examine was only written because of what God did in the life of this man, Simon, who became Peter. Peter wrote this letter, so we see that He's the author, but don't forget this. Don't forget that God was also at work here. Don't forget that God saw to it that this letter would be preserved and given to his church because this is, in God's mind, this is part of the new covenant literature, the new covenant canon that God has put together for us. And so Peter's the author, but God is the one who inspired this. And gave these words to Peter. Now notice the recipients of this letter. Peter says, after introducing himself to, this is who he's writing to, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were Christians, and I have a map up here, that were scattered across five different Roman provinces in what is today the country of Turkey. And Peter will refer to them as aliens. A couple times he calls them aliens. The Greek word means strangers. They were strangers because, of course, Peter didn't know them, we could say. Peter didn't know these people from Adam. He'd probably never met most of them. But Peter here recognizes his readers as strangers because they were strangers to the world. They were strangers in the world in which they lived. They were aliens to their world order. And we'll see more of that next week. But now flip over with me to the end of this letter in chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. 
And I want you to notice Peter's companions as he's writing. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, we see a couple familiar New Testament characters. Peter says, verse 12, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, Silvanus, also known as Silas, it's another name for Silas, was a beloved companion of Paul. This is the same Silas that we read about in Paul's missionary journeys in Acts, like in Acts 16. He's with Paul in prison, praising the Lord in the face of persecution. This is quite a, quite a guy. And he's here with, with uh, Peter, but Peter continues in verse 13. He says, she who is in Babylon, this is a reference to the church who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Interesting. Mark is also with Peter. Mark was a close companion with Peter, insomuch that Peter identifies him here as his own son. Now, Mark wasn't the biological son of Peter. He was a spiritual son. Because history tells us that Peter spiritually mentored Mark. Just like Paul spiritually mentored Timothy so that Timothy became his son in the faith. Well, Mark would become Peter's son in the faith. And of course, that's interesting because this is biblical proof that Peter and Mark were co-laborers. And history tells us, the church fathers tell us, that, that Mark records for us Peter's gospel. So I think that's all very interesting. Now notice the place where Peter is writing from. Did you see that? If you look at chapter 5, verse 13, Peter tells us, his readers, he tells his readers, he's sending greetings from the church in Babylon. Now, this is in Babylon in, you know, the Middle East, okay? That, this city had been decimated and was not inhabited for centuries now, uh, but most scholars believe that this Babylon here reference is a cryptic reference to Rome, because Babylon was a symbol of man's rival kingdom to God's kingdom. Going back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, and since Rome was in Peter's day the, the, the very center of man's rival rebellious kingdom, it's no surprise that Peter and other Christians at the time sometimes used Babylon as a symbol for Rome. This is how the church fathers understood Peter when they were interpreting this, and uh, an early testimony tells us that Peter would die in Rome under the persecution of Nero. And so I think that there's good reason to believe Peter means here he is writing from Rome. That's also where John Mark ministered. Very interesting. Now consider the date going through, and we're, we're trying to get some background details for the book here. Consider the date of Peter's letter. The letter doesn't give us a date, that's right, so we can't be absolutely certain, but we can have a fairly good idea by acknowledging Peter's authorship of this letter and Peter's execution under Nero we can date this letter to the early 60s. No, it's not the 1960s, okay? We're talking about the 60s AD. And uh, here's why that's significant. By the providence of God, Peter is writing this letter just a few months, or, or, or years, perhaps, prior to the great fire of Rome in AD 64. And this is when Emperor Nero goes crazy. He's already mentally unstable, but he blames it on the Christians, and there is a terrible persecution in Rome, and ultimately resulting in Peter's own martyrdom for his faith. So with this in mind, let's just do a quick flyover of Peter's letter, and we're going to go through this letter just quickly. I want to point out a few uh, verses. We can't obviously read the whole thing in this setting, but I want us to try to get an idea of what it was that occasioned Peter's 
writing this letter. So let's consider the occasion of this letter. If we look down in chapter 1, go back to chapter 1, and you look down at verse 6, Peter says to his readers, you greatly rejoice. Remember, these are Christians scattered across Asia Minor, but he says you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter acknowledges that his readers are being, they have been and they are being distressed by various trials. And then he says, you must pass through this fire. God wants you to pass through this fire. He's testing you through this fire. We kind of get a better idea of what this fire and what these trials are as we go on. In chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter urges that his readers keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. Have you ever been slandered for your faith in Jesus? Maybe because you, you didn't want to go along with whatever everybody else was doing or saying? Apparently, that was going on here. These people were being slandered for their Christian beliefs. In chapter 2, verse 20, Peter says, there's nothing praiseworthy about being treated harshly for doing evil. But he says, if you're suffering for what is right, he says, this finds favor with God. Now, Peter will say this because of the fact that these Christians are suffering, not for doing evil, but they are suffering for what is, according to the Bible, right and good and true. This kind of thing is going on in our world today. It's always been going on. In chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, uh, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving blessing instead. And he says this again because people, these people are receiving insults. They're receiving evil. And he wants them to, to role-play Jesus in this situation. Look at Jesus, he says. Chapter 3, verse 14 suggests that as these believers were suffering for the sake of righteousness, some were experiencing intimidation from their persecutors. And some, we see, he hints at others were, were troubled. And he uses a Greek word here that means terrified, a fear that results in confusion. As they're being persecuted, whatever that looked like, some in these Christian communities were intimidated. They were afraid. Others were afraid and began to be confused. They began asking questions. Where is God? Why did God allow this? Peter writes, because there's fear and confusion in these Christian communities. Chapter 3 and verse 16 uh, actually suggests that these Christians were again being slandered and reviled for their good behavior in Christ. And after describing the behavior of their pagan members in chapter 4, if you look at chapter 4 and verse, first few verses there, Peter suddenly gives us one reason in verse 4 for the slander that is raised against these Christians. He says, in all this, they are surprised. That is, your pagan neighbors are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Peter's saying, they are maligning you, they are slandering you, they are treating you the way you are because you are nonconformists. And apparently, these holy lives these people were living was exposing the darkness around them. They didn't like that. The world didn't like that. Chapter 4, down in verse 12, Peter acknowledges there's a fiery ordeal among his readers. The word ordeal, translated ordeal, is from the Greek, this idea of a furnace. 
This is pretty intense. In chapter 5, in verse 7, Peter says, Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. He's saying, what you're going through is what others are right now going through. He wants you to know you're not alone in your suffering. This is happening. Other brothers and sisters are presently enduring the same. You know, this is a broad audience. Peter is being concise. And, and obviously, he's not writing to explain to us in the 21st century what it was they were enduring exactly. We're kind of eavesdropping. But as we're trying to figure out, Peter, why, why was Peter writing this? What occasion this letter? Even as Peter keeps this pretty general, we can clearly see he's alluding to a persecution that involved reviling, slander. Uh, th- there was apparently various fiery trials. We don't know all that involved, but surely that would have included various forms of coercion. And at times, even physical violence. I'm sure we, we can say that because even in the book of Acts itself, we see Christians being persecuted in various ways. The Greek verb, pasco, meaning to suffer, occurs 12 times in, these, in this brief letter. And, and that's twice more than any book in the New Testament. That is because this book is written to people who are suffering. These are Christians who are, who are clearly in a difficult position. Now, why were pagans persecuting these Christians? Jewish society was openly hostile to Christianity from the very beginning for religious reasons. But uh, here, by the time Peter is writing this letter, these Christians are now suffering from Romans. They're suffering from their Roman neighbors too. So what inspired Roman hostility to Christians? Why did they care? about what the Christians believed and taught. Well, let me give you five reasons behind Rome's growing hostility to Christians. And some of them you will find in the book of Acts, some of them from early Christian apologists, and even from Christianity's earliest critics. First, Christians were hated for political reasons. The Romans came to view Christians as disloyal because Christians refused to offer incense to Caesar or the gods of Rome. And Christians refused to even serve in the Roman military for the same reason, for religious purposes. And the Christian God himself was understood to be a man, a Jewish man, who was executed under capital punishment under the sentence of a Roman governor. So to the Romans, King Jesus was a political rival to Caesar. But Christians were also hated for religious reasons. Christianity was viewed as a disintegrating force in traditional Roman religion. You know, the Christians were actually called atheists. We read the ancient literature, Romans talking about Christians. They're referred to as atheists because the Christians deny the existence of the gods of the Roman pantheon. The Christian love feasts were slandered as incestuous. And the Lord's table, where Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. Take, this, is, this cup is the cup of my blood. They said, oh, the Christians are guilty of cannibalism. They slandered Christians as cannibalistic. Can you imagine that? Thirdly, Christians were hated for social reasons. Christianity was viewed as a disintegrating force in the family itself because it was dividing daughter against mother and father against son. And, and it was dividing brother against brother, just as Jesus himself predicted in Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Christians also opposed certain social ordinances at the time that were very popular, such as slavery, infanticide, uh, the use of violence in the Roman games, and prostitution. The Christians were against these things, and so they were hated as social nonconformists. 
People that just don't get with it. And they were therefore social outcasts. Fourthly, Christians were hated for economic reasons. Christian beliefs brought a change of behavior. Isn't that so true? Anywhere someone truly believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, their life is changed. They're made a new creation. And in the book of Acts, we just read about what happened in Philippi in Acts 16, how when people start to believe on Jesus Christ, their lives are changed. They no longer want their idols. They no longer buy idols. And there's an economical impact in Philippi, insomuch that it brings persecution because money talks. Money, the love of money is the root of all evil. We see the same thing in Acts uh, 19. In Ephesus, Christianity is blamed for turning the world upside down. We don't like it. We want it to go away. Actually, calamities such as famine, war, drought, pestilence were sometimes blamed on Christians because, hey, the Christians have angered the gods. It's the Christians' fault. So if we punish the Christians, we will appease the gods. And this kind of thing actually happens in certain animistic cultures uh, in our time. Of course, at the root of all of this, we can add the fifth and ultimate reason that Christians experienced hostility in the Gentile world, and that is a spiritual reason. The spiritual reason, which Jesus himself explained in John 3, 19. Jesus said, the light has come into the world. Now, he was talking about himself, ultimately. But Jesus would tell his disciples in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. You will carry forth, and you will pass on the torch that I am giving to you. And so Jesus explained in John 3, 19, the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil, for everyone who does evil hates the light. Imagine that. Jesus said the big problem with humanity isn't that they don't know the truth, it's that they don't want the truth. That's why they hate the light. And so this is the historical context, the explanation, the occasion behind Peter's letter. As the church continues to expand across the Roman Empire, she is beginning to experience, to encounter increasing hostility for the sake of Christ. And Peter writes to instruct these churches living in a culture like ours. The future is uncertain. Things are, are, are heating up. And he writes to encourage the church to stand firm. Stand firm. Don't back down. Don't retreat. Now, I want to leave you also with a few neat characteristics of Peter's letter that help us better understand and appreciate it. We've seen the historical context of the letter. Let's examine now some literary characteristics of this letter. And this is all in addition to the fact, of course, that this letter is part of the inspired, inerrant word of our God. For being so small, First Peter, this, this little letter, it contains a lot of citations from the Old Testament. More than any of Paul's epistles, excepting for First Corinthians and Romans, which are much larger than first peter but we get an idea when we go through this letter we see peter citing or alluding to again and again the old testament shows us this author was very familiar with his bible he loved the word of god and the letter here is rich with theological truth that is truth about god peter is going to show a strong familiarity with jesus teaching and just these short five chapters. First Peter echoes multiple sayings of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels. I don't have time to show you those or list all those for you, but this letter was clearly written by one who sat at the feet of Jesus. He had learned from Jesus. And First Peter bears then a lot of similarities to uh, Ephesians. In, in many ways, scholars have brought out there's, there's a lot of parallels. It's a, it's a wonderfully rounded letter. 
And yet, unfortunately, 1 Peter is much less explored than many of Paul's letters. It's been said that 1 Peter is largely underrated. It's kind of forgotten about. Maybe that's because it's in the back of the New Testament. But I'm glad we're opening it. I'm, I'm glad we're, what we're going to learn from it. I think you'll see this is a very important, needful letter for us. The mood throughout this letter as we read it, we find, is very pastoral. You know what that means? It means the writer, in this case Peter, is writing with a very compassionate, gentle, caring, comforting tone. And some skeptics have even claimed Peter wouldn't have written this sort of caring, compassionate letter to all these Gentiles in Asia Minor that he didn't even know. Uh, but actually, 1 Corinthians 9.5 suggests to us that Peter, who was married, by the way, um, traveled about with his wife. And he preached the gospel. So Peter may have at least visited some of these churches sometime before. At any rate, we know Peter cared for these people because this is exactly what Christ called him to do. Jesus would explicitly call Peter to care for his sheep. The pastoral mood of this letter brings to mind a certain story at the close of John's gospel. In John chapter 21, after breakfast on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus has already risen and reappeared to his disciples. And here he's sitting with Peter after breakfast. And he says to Peter, Simon, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then a moment later, Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I told you that. And Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Jesus says again a third time to Peter, Simon, do you love me? And Simon, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Yes, Jesus was uh, giving Peter three chances for the three times he denied him to affirm, reaffirm his love for Jesus three times. Of course, that is what is happening here. But I mention this story because each time that Jesus says to Peter, uh, you know, Simon, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know. Jesus says what? He says, you love me if you really love me feed my sheep care for my people and these people these people that peter is writing to they were part of the precious flock of jesus christ scattered abroad it didn't matter if peter knew them or not they they were Peter's brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is how he will address them. That is how he endeavors to care for them because he recognized they are the precious people of God. They are Christ's flock. This letter is actually proof as we read it and we see the writer's compassion and care for his readers. We see this letter is proof that Peter obeyed the words of Jesus. Peter got it. As he became firm in his faith, he gave his life to strengthening the brothers. He gave his life to feeding Christ's flock. But more importantly for us, I think we could say this letter is proof that Jesus himself, who described himself as our good shepherd, he's not left us without guidance. Isn't that true? Jesus has given us this letter because even in these uncertain times, he wants us to have guidance. And, and so this is our shepherd's message to us. That's how we have to receive these words. Now, you'll find that a lot of music that we listen to, I love music, I studied classical music in college, a lot of music we listen to has these main themes it goes back to, and that's kind of what gets stuck in your head, right? And the main theme is easily discernible because 
the song will repeatedly return back to that main theme. It returns back to that certain theme. And if it's in a film or something, you know, the main parts of the movie are always accented by that main theme. And in between that main theme, just to add variety, you have all these sub-themes. Well, literature is very much like music in that regard. And to better understand and appreciate this letter, we should be aware of its main theme and its sub-themes. Peter's main theme in this letter is, and you probably already picked up on it as we were kind of going through the occasion, the main theme is suffering. Suffering as a Christian. We've seen the situation that occasioned the letter. God's people are suffering. Some are anxious. Some are troubled to the point they're, con- they're confused. They're afraid. And given this historical setting, it shouldn't surprise us that the main theme we hear occurring throughout Peter's entire letter is how to suffer as a Christian. Or we could even say how to live as a Christian when it's difficult. Whatever the challenge. He wants his readers to know, chapter 2, verse 21, you have been called for this purpose. That is to suffer. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter tells his readers, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, this fiery furnace among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Here comes persecution. The government's cracking down. It's getting difficult to be a Christian. I'm losing friends. I'm I'm, I'm having trouble in the home. My home is splitting apart. What's going on, God? What are you doing? Why is this happening? And we think it's strange. We think it odd. And yet Peter writes to say, expect it. Expect it and embrace it as you share in the sufferings of your Lord. In fact, the best, perhaps the best key verse, if we could sum up the entire letter with an actual verse, might actually be 1 Peter 4, 16, where Peter says to his readers, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Peter's telling you, suffering is not your shame, it is your glory if you suffer for the sake of Jesus. Wow. That he's going to completely invert our thinking. He's going to completely give us an upside-down way of thinking, but it's a very Christian, Christ-like way of approaching life. Now flip back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, and I want you to see briefly how this main theme of suffering as a Christian elicits what is Peter's stated purpose for writing. At the end of his letter, chapter 5, verse 12, Peter gives us a summation of his purpose writing. And he says, I have written, in verse 12, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Peter doesn't promise us an exemption from suffering. He doesn't uh, call us to retreat from our suffering. He doesn't even give us a way, oh, here's a way, let's adapt the, the message of the gospel to your culture so that you don't undergo persecution. No, Peter says, hold the line. Stand firm. Stand firm in this grace, this true grace of God. Now, we can't stand firm in the true grace of God if we don't have that true grace of God or if we don't know what that true grace of God is. And so as we go through this letter, we're going to be tracing out several other sub-themes. We don't have time to do it all now, which involve standing firm in God's grace. First, we're going to see this idea of the hope hope of 
a coming deliverance, to stand firm against whatever may come. You as a Christian, you need a joyous, glorious, living hope, knowing that Christ is soon to be revealed. If that's not your hope, you're not going to stand firm in this grace. Second, we need uh, this new identity. We need to embrace this new identity as the elect people of God and to stand firm against whatever may come. We need to know who we are. We need to know what, what our real life and purpose here on this earth is about. If we lose that, we won't stand firm. So Peter's going to write to us about the, our new identity. We're also going to see a theme on holy living in an evil world. To stand firm against whatever may come, you have to cut ties with a lot of this world and its, its rebellion, its sin. You can't compromise. You can't hold on to Christ in the world. Jesus was very plain about that. We have a new responsibility to Christ. And fourthly, we're going to see a theme of Christian community in an evil world. To hold the line, what do we have to do? We have to close the gaps. Peter's going to say, you don't just have a new responsibility to Christ. Now, you have a new responsibility to one another. Your brothers and sisters need you. There's also going to be here a theme on ethical guidance in an evil world. That's going to be the body of Peter's letter to us, giving us ethical guidance how to live in an evil world. And to stand firm against whatever's coming in our culture, we need to have God's word and his wisdom for what to do when hostility comes. What do I do in a situation where in my own home there's, there's inequality? There's an unequal yoke. I'm married to a non-believer at work. My boss is telling me this. My friends are telling me this. What do we do in these situations? How do we live as a Christian in the midst of an evil world? And lastly, we see, uh, as another sub-thing, I'm sure there's more I could share, but Christ's blessed example is going to be a recurring sub-thing. We're going to see Peter is going to point us to Christ's example, especially Christ's example in suffering. To stand firm against whatever comes, we need to look at Jesus. You need to live in light of Jesus Christ. You won't stand firm if you take your eyes off of him. So Peter wants us to use Jesus as our role model. This letter was written to prepare Christians like us to stand firm in our faith. And there's a story in the apocryphal Acts of Peter that's a non-canonical document dating to the 2nd century AD. But it tells the following story, and there are certainly things in the story that are true. When persecution broke out in Rome under Emperor Nero, a warrant was sent for Peter's arrest and execution. And Christians, learning of this danger, urged Peter, their beloved uh, pastor and leader, to leave Rome. So Peter decides to take his friend's advice, and he escapes the cross. He seeks to escape the cross. So he disguises himself with a change of apparel. He sets out alone. But as Peter's fleeing the cross, as he's left the city of Rome, he sees a man approaching with a familiar face. Passing him along the way, he knows it's Jesus. And so Peter calls out with that iconic Latin phrase, Quo vadis Domini, where are you going, Lord? To which Jesus replies, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And hearing the Savior's steadfast words of incredible, unwavering, unshakable resolve, Peter takes courage. He turns about, he goes back into the city of Rome, continues preaching the gospel. And shortly after, he is crucified with and for his Lord. Peter, a stone, fixed, firm in the grace of God, firm in his faith, unwavering to the end. That was the story of this man's life. That is the legacy 
of the Christian faith. And the only reason, brothers and sisters, you have this very gospel of God preserved for you is because others, by the grace of God, followed Jesus, our Savior, to the cross. And that's how you have this gospel today. And our Lord is expecting nothing less than us as his people. Now, you may not have the name Peter. You may not be an apostle. I know you're not. And you may not feel strong. You may say, I'm a baby Christian. I got, look, I got a lot of problems in my life right now. Well, please understand, that's why this letter is for us. Because we need to prepare. This is the real world. This is not a drill. We need to be ready for what is to come. And our Lord has called you to take up his cross and follow him. He's given you this word to stand firm so that when the time comes, you may be prepared to stand firm for your faith in Christ. Let's pray.